I'm Julie Rose, and this is Top of Mind. I have been a radio journalist for two decades, but a few years ago, I found myself avoiding the news for long stretches because of how depressing and divisive it all seems. I still wanted to be informed and engaged on important issues, though, and I figured I couldn't be alone in that. So we created this podcast. Each week, we tackle one tough topic in a way that will challenge you, help you feel more empathy, and empower you to become a better citizen, a kinder neighbor, and a more effective advocate. Today, the quest for civil discourse in a divided world. I'm joined by Milan Cordestani. He's a tech entrepreneur and author of a new book called I'm Just Saying. Milan, welcome. Thanks so much for taking time today. Hi, Julie. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. This is our Stick With It conversation series on the Top of Mind podcast, where we talk with people about a time when they encountered a perspective or opinion that really challenged them. And instead of getting defensive or shutting down, which is our natural instinct, they chose to stay, stick with that discomfort, to stay open, curious, maybe humble even, and see where it might lead. So, Milan, your new book is actually a guide for doing this. It's, it aligns exactly with the philosophy that we have here at Top of Mind, this need to practice staying humble and curious and actively seeking out perspectives that, that challenge us. Uh, how did this become a topic of interest to you? I, I, I fell in love with civil discourse because I created a publication based on this idea that we need to focus on the, the topics and the points of conversations unless the people saying them. Um, and so it was, it's an anonymous publication called The Doe. We published over a thousand different stories from all walks of life. And through the process of hearing all these different stories from across the political spectrum, across a gender spectrum, across every you know, spectrum you could think of, uh, I ended up falling in love with civil discourse. Mm. I want to talk more about The Doe and, and sort of the interesting take that you had on, on on civil discourse and how to facilitate it, because it really is central to your book. But let's talk about a specific stick with it moment then to kind of kick this conversation off so that we can dissect and learn from it. Um, and it involves a tweet. Uh, tell me what you were doing on Twitter at the time. What was your approach at that moment? So at the time, a lot of the content I was putting out was just trying to be consistent with being very positive and um, putting out like what I would now call almost like toxically positive, but just very optimistic content for fellow founders and entrepreneurs to kind of, um, same thing, stick with it, you know, stick with the journey of being an entrepreneur mm. and, and leaving no stone unturned. Uh, and that, that tweet in particular was, you know, the, the moment that kind of changed that perspective for me and kind of pushed me to realize that I need to be more empathetic and, and conscious of the words I'm choosing and, and to, you know, further double down on civil discourse was if you don't come out of this quarantine with a new skill, a new side hustle, more knowledge, you never lack time, you lack discipline. And so there was all of this reaction to that tweet at the time, like all of these people, um, some people, of course, resonated with it, like the very hustle culture entrepreneurs were down for that. But in large part, what I started getting pushback on was, and um, I didn't get canceled for this, but it was like a lot of pushback and kind of that fear of, whoa, I clearly, I clearly didn't think about other people or put myself in their shoes when the feedback was that, well, people right now are suffering. People are literally dying. People are having to change their ways of life in a way mm -hmm. that, um, you know, they haven't had to ever before. And 
to expect them to come out of this or to expect them to now be taking on more uh, is unrealistic and it's unfair and it's almost inhuman. And so it was um, it was a great awakening, I think, for me and a, a kind of a jolt that, you know, I have to be much more thoughtful with with the words I choose to put out into the world. Yeah, it, uh, <laughs> I appreciate how, how candid you are to, to start your book with an example of a situation where you didn't do as well as you would like to have done. <laughs> so, you know, yes. um, that I, I think that's really great. Um, I mean, did you have any inkling that what you were saying might be considered controversial? And 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 was this the kind of thing where it, um, like, you woke up the next morning to a gazillion <laughs> replies and you were like, oh my gosh, I went viral and I don't know if it's a good thing. Yes. So it was definitely a moment of like going viral and it, it happened the same day. Like it was like it caught fire within hours. It was getting retweeted. And again, at first the reception was really positive. It took a turn a bit later on, uh, I guess, in the day. And do you remember what I, your reaction, like what that felt like for you in that moment? Um, I don't know if I'm allowed to, what words I can use on this show, but it's kind of like an oh shit moment, you know? <laughs> it's like, uh, <laughs> you're like, whoa, I. I, I completely neglected to think about this other perspective. And that's okay. Uh, and, and I think that's part of, I think part of my journey in, in writing this book, why I wanted to open up with that moment was because it wasn't like I discovered civil discourse in the process of putting out that tweet, but it was one of those moments where it was like, if I truly care about civil discourse beyond running a publication and a company that's focused on, you know, trying to spark discourse and civil discourse in the world, I have to show up in this moment and be like, I can be wrong. I can make a mistake, and I can own that, and um, and and hopefully turn it into a positive learning moment for for myself and other people, and and that's what I did. Let's talk about that decision point then. So, um, because this is, it's the thing I found in having these conversations with lots of people is that. Um, you know, in hindsight, it sort of seems like, well, of course I took this route. But in the moment, there was a choice that had to be made. Um, did you did you feel, did you at all feel like, okay, these people are wrong. I didn't mean this. Everybody needs to chill out. And, you know, I'm just going to, like, delete the tweet or, uh, you know, kind of lash out or something, right? Did you have that instinct at all? Yes, um, all of that existed. <laughs> should I just delete it and pretend it didn't happen? Should I, uh, should I just come and say no? Like, I sorry, I didn't mean this for this audience that it ended up getting virally upfed to. I meant it for like my small little entrepreneurial founders audience that is interested in this hustle culture type of thing. You know, there all of that runs through your mind of like, do I really have to respond? Do I have to fall on my sword here? And um, and then, of course, there's that whole process of like, well, what does falling on my sword even mean? Or what does that look like? Like, what what do I have to apologize for? Because I, I didn't do this with malicious intent. But, you know, uh, intention isn't everything. And, and that's unfortunate. And I talk about intention as being one of the most important factors of civil discourse um, in the book. But if people don't understand your intention, then it doesn't actually matter all that much. So part of civil discourse and excellent communication is making your intention really clear and apologizing and falling on your sword is one of the best ways, I think, to make your intention really clear. Um, do you remember the moment when you decided, okay, I'm going to do that? Like, that's what I need to do? Um, I remember who it was and the message that they had left me that made me realize, like, I needed to pay attention to that feedback. Um, it was a founder of another, like, really impact-driven startup. Mm. And and for me, that's everything. Like, uh, the all that I do is focused on positive social impact and the startups I create, like, that's the focus of each one. 
um, in one way or another. And to just have another founder that kind of was like, no, this wasn't it. You know, that was kind of a, it, it hurts. Like, it, you know, it's like a, one of those like moments of the soul where you're like, mm, I disappointed my community. And so that was kind of the moment I think that, um, that it became clear. Yeah. So what did you do? Uh, so I wrote a, I wrote a, basically an apology saying, look, I'm, I'm sorry. I didn't think of, I didn't think of this. Like I was very much so in my own echo chamber of um, feeling like I'm constantly rushed and need to be improving myself, adding more to my plate and so on. And so, you know, that's all that tweet was, was that an expectation that that's what others in my community should be doing. But, um, you know, like recognizing that I was, I was fortunate, I was privileged to not have um, all of those impacts of being, you know, an essential worker or having family members who were, you know, very ill and so on, or having to take care of my family even. Um, so, you know, there was a big, a big divide between people during that time, right, that had free time and could do more and saw COVID as actually a nice break. And people that, uh, not at all, that wasn't at all the case, they were, you know, really st- suffering and struggling to, to get by. You, you published an apology tweet then? I published an apology tweet okay. and I didn't delete it. And I, I think, I don't know if I mentioned it at the time, but I didn't want to delete it because that moment, right, saying saying something and then going back on it and saying, I'm wrong, uh, is, is really human. It's really powerful. And it's like, a, I think it's actually what Jack Dorsey intended for the platform of Twitter back in the day when he talks about why you couldn't edit tweets and why you couldn't delete. It's because it, it, it almost was uh, inhuman to assume that you'd be perfect all the time, that he wanted the platform to actually have imperfection in it and was hoping that that would actually make it more casual of an environment. I think what ended up happening was actually that the platform made people more robotic, where it felt like everything had to be perfect that goes out. And that's the opposite of, of you know, us humans, because we are imperfect. So, yeah. yeah, I think the apology and keeping it still live, which it is today, is um, is important. And um, what did that mean for you? What, what was the outcome for you as a as a champion of civil dialogue, as a as an individual and, a, and an entrepreneur caring about improving the world? I think it was like a sigh of relief, honestly, that it's like, whew, okay, I could have a moment of like some sort of failure, you know, in the public um, eye. And it's not like I hadn't had that many viral tweets before, but that one that went viral, you know, there's like an excitement at first, like, wow, yes. And then all of a sudden it comes crashing down and you're like, oh, that's... So, you know, it could have very easily been like, okay, I'm going to become isolated and seclude myself and avoid that that frustration and challenge again. Or it's kind of like a, you know, like I mentioned, falling on your sword and saying like, I will rise past this. And this is just uh, one of those learning moments along the way. I'm speaking with Milan Kordestani, who is a tech entrepreneur. He's got a new book called I'm Just Saying. And uh, I'd love to pivot now from the stick with it moment. Thank you for sharing that, Milan. Because it, it ties directly into some of the concepts that you cover in this book, which, like I said, as I was reading it, I'm like, yes, yes, that too. Oh, and that too. Exactly. He said it better than I could. So so that it's always fun when you feel like you're having a little bit like somebody's inside my head. How is he getting this? Um, I'm so glad. Ha- yeah. Well, let's, so you mentioned a little, a moment ago, the, the dough. Um, my perception from reading the book is that, that this online publication, this forum that you founded was... Um, also, kind of the genesis of this idea that you have to you have to kind of actively seek 
difficult, uncomfortable perspectives and then find a way to sit in that discomfort to like that sticking with it is is key to civil discourse. So let's expand a little bit on on that publication. Um, you were in college at the time, right? Or just barely. I mean, you're still only just a few years out of college. So you've accomplished a lot yes. for, for this stage of your life. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah, I was in college. I was a sophomore in college and it was a, it was the culmination of a lot of points. So by that point in time in my life, I had been writing for the Huffington Post and a couple other publications and maintaining my own little blog on Medium and just feeling tired of like being restrictive with the content I wanted to put out in the world. Feeling like, and this was before that tweet ever happened, but this feeling that I could say something and get canceled for it or that like I couldn't make a mistake online. And that feeling is something I talk a lot about in this book and what I'm worried about for future generations is that if you're scared of uncomfortable conversation, if you're scared of the reaction to asking questions, um, we're, we're not going to have, live in a progressive society. What's going to end up happening is that fear is going to hold us back from having really important conversations, from challenging the status quo um, and, and moving forward. So it's it, out of that frustration, you know, that was from a writer side of things, myself getting tired of just putting out content that I felt was generic or cookie cutter, um, to also being a student in college that I thought was going to be this like, you know, diverse melting pot of opinions where people would be having great debates and mm. challenging ideas. And it ended up just being a lot of, you know, pandering to your professor in whatever class you were in to get good grades. And, and that, um, that was really, I think, unfortunate. So all of that kind of came together to say, I want to cultivate and find the stories that are going to create challenging conversations. That if I can put that information in front of people, it's inevitably going to spark some sort of reaction. Now, how do we moderate that conversation and so on? That's a, still a challenge that these big social media platforms are trying to understand. But it was this idea that from an editorial standpoint, at least, we can seek uh, certain conversations and certain you know, first person perspectives and just say, let's put these out in the world and see what people react to them. And I can give a couple examples, but, um, you know, some of them were really, really interesting to see how many, you know, hundreds of thousands of people would come and want to talk about them. But there's a key piece in that is that the writers are, were anonymous. So help me understand that. Why make the choice yes. to make these perspectives anonymous on the dough? Great question. So they weren't anonymous to members of our editorial team. We had a whole process of vetting people and who they were and that the story that they were telling us actually happened to them. Um, and the reason that we decided to go with anonymous publishing was because it felt like there wasn't a place to do that on the internet correctly. Like you could go and create a fake social media account and go and tell a story, but everyone would be like, this isn't authentic. This isn't real. And there's certain publications, like the New York Times has done it, the Atlantic has done it, where they'll protect an identity and say, like, we're not going to share this identity, but tell this story. But there wasn't a dedicated location for that. And I felt that that was incredibly important because I didn't want to have some of these really difficult conversations or these difficult stories muted or, you know, lessened in their intensity just because the person was uncomfortable with their name being attached to it. And so, you know, you'd get a father, for example, talking about how he never wanted to be a parent, but he did it because he loves his wife and wanted, you know, she wanted to have children. And to this day, he still doesn't love his children. We're like 14 and 16, but here are how he's learned to cope with that. Then you get thousands of fathers in the comment section saying, me too. I thought I was alone. I thought I was a psychopath. 
now I understand that there's ways to cope with this and to learn to cultivate better relationships with my kids and so on, um, even though I still struggle with this mindset. And that's really powerful, right? And like a story like that would have never seen the light of day and those people would have never come and had that conversation uh, if it wasn't for the ability to do it anonymously. Okay, but what about and, accountability though? So like if you had posted your tweet about, hey, quarantine's a great opportunity to learn a new skill. And if you don't, then you're just lazy, right? Like which, which was roughly what the, the gist of what you were saying. Like if your name hadn't been attached to that, yes. would you have taken responsibility and gone the extra mile to, you know, to learn from it? So it's a great question. And this is why it was an editorial and not an open platform. When we actually built the first version of it as a, you know, me being in tech, I built it like open source, like where people could be invited and publish whenever they wanted, almost like medium. And we never put that version of it live. And we instead moved to an editorial model because we recognized that some sort of, um, I don't want to call it gatekeeping, but some sort of editorial board to make sure that we weren't inciting violence, that we weren't, um, you know, going to be putting out content that would be disruptive, but that would be positive. It would it would spark interesting and positive conversations despite being a little bit on the fringes. Mm. Um, and what about so, the writers themselves? So it sounds like the civil dialogue, the discourse you were looking to promote was between readers of this content. Yes. You And you were setting aside any... Um, any interaction directly with the person with the perspective. So you were not looking to create civil dialogue with the holders of this, with the person who holds this viewpoint, this father who's writing, right? Like, he's off the hook. Right. He doesn't have to respond directly to criticism. What you want to do is see people debating his ideas in the comments. Right, and, and there's a lot of reasons for that. One of them is that it just, like you said, there's almost an unfair advantage if that person gets to remain anonymous to then constantly come back and defend themselves and do that with the blanket of anonymity, it's not really fair. So instead, what we do is we we consider the content that we put out like a mirror on society. Mm. Like, this person exists. This person could exist in your neighborhood. Maybe they don't and they exist in another state. But whatever it is, this person exists possibly in your country and they could there could be other people like that around you. What do you think? Like, let's talk about this. And the goal was then to have some of these conversations that you just didn't see happening in a productive way. So did it work? It did work. Uh, and so I'll say this. It was hard to monetize in the, in today's media era, but it was it worked. And we'd get hundreds and thousands of people in, in the comment section. And you could still go look at it. Like, we're the dough on Instagram. Um, you'll see a lot of the content there and the conversations that we sparked. The challenge was we never... We never went to capture the engagement part of it ourselves, right? We allowed social media to be the platform and them to moderate the conversations, ourselves to be the sparking of the conversation. Like we are the editorial, the journalists going out and finding these, these perspectives um, and sparking the conversation. And we want to continue doing that. And there's other realms where we think it's going to be really useful. Like we look at uh, Iran right now as, and even Russia, like some of these places where censorship really exists at the government level on citizens and you can't really get first-person perspectives from people uh, safely without doing it anonymously. And so like there's certain regions we want to go out and, and focus on to get perspectives from and being really targeted with how we do it going forward is going to be important. Mm -hmm. Like the LGBTQ community loved the dough for that reason. Like there was a lot of stories of transition, a lot of stories of um, empathy, a lot of. I, I one of the stories that I think was most impactful to me was a brother talking about um, 
you know, his, his brother having autism and what that was like growing up and how he learned to be empathetic for, with him and, um, you know, all of this. And, and then that same brother wrote a story for us and we put the two out together from like the perspective of an individual with autism, from the perspective of a sibling. And that story sparked so many people coming in saying, wow, the level of empathy this allowed me to find for my sibling, my cousin, my, you know, friend that has autism or is difficult to communicate with and so on. And um, that's really the hope, you know, it's like those moments of inspiring people to be able to have better conversations in their lives because they just, they gain some perspective. They gain some empathy for someone that was different from themselves. Yeah. We're able to, I think sometimes about like blinders, you know, on a horse or even just blind spots in the car, right? The, like, like coming to be able to acknowledge that that I have blind spots, like that there is no way for me not to have blind spots, that I have lived a certain experience. And as a result, I inherently cannot understand another person's perspective. As, you know, I, I haven't lived it, so I have to work to want underst- to, to understand that and, um, and, and to not feel threatened by it. And to understand that seeking discomfort is a part of growth. And, and that, so that's, that's part of why this place had to exist. Like the dough needed to exist on the internet, in my opinion, was because I didn't have to agree with everything that we put out in the world. In fact, I didn't agree with everything we put out in the world. There was a bit of church and state with the editorial department. Mm-hmm. And that's because um, some of the content needed to make me uncomfortable too, you know? Like I'm a certain type of person as well. <laughs> so that's the truth. I think there needs to be moments of us seeking out that discomfort in our lives too to be able to grow. So what do you think is missing from the narrative that we hear quite a bit in America today that we're so polarized, we need to figure out how to talk to each other with civility. What um what does that miss or what's uh what more do we need to be saying or thinking about for for that to really be meaningful? Have you heard of this uh the CDC or just put, said that we are in a loneliness epidemic? Mm, yeah. Have you seen a headline about that? So I think that that is really like the most recent easiest way to explain the division is that people are really not communicating with each other. People really don't give each other the benefit of the doubt. Um, there's this book also similar to mine, but that I, I loved reading called Bowling Alone. And it was this conversation about like the decline of bowling communities and clubs in the U.S. and that kind of being like the first red flag of community um, starting to struggle. Is that struggle. Robert Putnam? So, Is it, was that a Robert Putnam yes. book? Yes. Okay, yeah. Yes. And and so I think social media creates these echo chambers where we don't have to ever really be exposed to content that is that contrarian to us, sometimes a little bit just to get you riled up if you choose to follow publications and so on. But you could live in this echo chamber of your own where you don't have to ever be exposed to contrarian thoughts. You could live in a community or a home where you gate yourself off and don't have to talk to people. And that creates division. You could wear headphones every time you go through an airport or through public transport or sit in a car. And and all of that creates what is one part a loneliness epidemic, which is going to be inevitably poor for mental health. But that also, that further isolation makes us more divided when we think that everyone is different from us. Everyone is the other. And part of why I think putting out this, these types of stories in the world is to say like, look, we're not alone. A lot of us are quite similar. We have had crazy circumstances that give us different perspective from one another. But civil discourse is this idea that we are probably capable of finding common ground on the majority of topics if we give each other the respect of, you know, understanding each other's um, different perspectives and upbringings to 
to then say, okay, what are the values that we can find common ground on to uphold in a society? What are some of the techniques that you find most useful that you recommend other people attempt when, you know, getting comfortable being uncomfortable? The biggest one, and it sounds so simple and cliche, is active listening. And that is when someone is speaking, turning off your own thoughts and not trying to come up with a response, not trying to think about what point you need to convey or evidence to extract from their, you know, their words. It's entirely just listening to understand them better and create more connection with them. That's the goal. And when you're listening for that purpose, you then ask questions instead of just coming back with your own thoughts, right? You want to further double down on them understanding you and your intention of trying to understand them better. And that creates connection. When people feel heard, when people feel understood, they become less defensive. And that is the whole, the whole crux of this book is teaching tools to kind of disarm people so that they don't get angry, they don't get defensive, and they actually become really open to discussing, um, you know, common values and finding common ground. I, I love I love the disarm that, that word that you just mentioned there. Um, when we go into these conversations, it's one thing to actively listen, but you, you're going to turn your thoughts off, but you can't turn off your emotional reactions. And, and you're going to have, uh, I mean, I've experienced this where I'm actively listening, but I also realize that I'm having these like, you know, physical reactions to what I'm hearing because of lots of different reasons, right? And that yes. part can, I mean, that can hijack any good intention you have. Um, so what, what, what has worked for you when you are attempting to actively listen, develop empathy, but you're also encountering a perspective that really does trigger some personal stuff for you or some hard stuff? I usually end up responding by telling them a story. And that's kind of what you see me do a lot in this book is like, if I, if I can't come up with a response, anything short of getting angry, the next best thing is to tell a story. If I, and it's not, I don't want to ask questions anymore. If I can't just keep asking them why and so on. The next best thing is to say, what, how can I help them understand my perspective better? And so to do that is usually let me let me pull a story from my life and be vulnerable and show them what that looks like here. And and that's that's usually the you know mm -hmm. the hope is that if you then example that, if you show that vulnerability and tell a story from your life where something went wrong or something um, inspired you or gave you the perspective that you have that's in contrary and to, to what they're saying, um, that is a moment that I think will allow you to kind of same thing, disarm them and and keep it from getting angry. Because once it gets angry, it, it's really not easy to walk it back. At least not in that moment. And what should be the goal? What, uh, what, what should I be trying to accomplish when I go into an uncomfortable conversation or expose myself to these uncomfortable perspectives? The goal is actually consensus. And that... A lot of times people will hear me say that and push back saying that that I don't want to give up my values or I don't want to just be a pushover or so on. And it's not it's none of those things. Um, the goal, you know, I, the easiest example is in your relationships with either a spouse or a loved one or your children. If you are constantly going into that with I am right and they are wrong, that means that someone is always leaving that conversation feeling wrong and feeling worse than when they entered it. And 
I fully believe that most people don't want to be the type of person that leaves people worse than they found them. And so the reality is you want to go into most conversations thinking, how do I create connection with this person? How do I find common ground with this person? And at times that's helping them see my perspective and understand why I see the world differently than them and trying to help have them come around to that, that view. And at other times it's myself, right? Recognizing that there are different people from my own perspectives and I need to sometimes, you know, not necessarily compromise on my perspectives, but meet them halfway. Um, and that, that reciprocity of like being able to find common values, even if we have different perspectives and disagree, I think is kind of the whole cell of this country, right? That like we can be this giant melting pot and all create, you know, create great things. Milan Kordestani is a tech entrepreneur and author. His new book is called I'm Just Saying, A Guide to Maintaining Civil Discourse in an Increasingly Divided World. It's been so nice speaking with you. Thanks for your time today, Milan. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it a lot, Julie. Okay, so what stick with it moments have you had in your life? Or maybe even while listening to an episode of Top of Mind when you heard a perspective that challenged you. We do it on purpose. We intentionally include perspectives that will challenge just about anybody who's listening because we want to give you that experience of staying open and curious, getting to a place of deeper empathy, and hopefully also more clarity on your own views so you can be a better citizen and a kinder neighbor, a more effective advocate for what matters to you. I'd love to hear about your stick with it story, maybe even have you on the podcast to share it. So email topofmind at byu.edu and we'll be in touch. I'm Julie Rose. We'll talk soon.